Today's lesson is following their own corruption. The background passage for this lesson is Romans chapters 1 through 8. In the beginning, God created everything good and perfect. But soon the choices of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden unleashed the deadly power of sin upon God's good creation. <clears throat> the accounts of the judges make it abundantly clear that sin is a powerful force to be reckoned with, and we don't have the power to do so. Even the bright spots of Ruth, Boaz, Hannah, and Samuel were plagued by sin personally and dealt with a world marred by sin's effects, including famine, infertility, idolatry, and even death. On our own, we are helpless before sin and death. But through the Savior sent for our salvation, we can overcome. The consequences of Adam and Eve's sin are not restricted to the early chapters of Genesis. Throughout the pages of the Bible and into the present day, sin manifests itself in tragic and terrible ways. The only way to overcome sin and its consequences is through faith in God, who sent his Son to die on the cross so sinners who believe would be saved from sin's consequences and empowered by the Holy Spirit to resist sin's pull within their lives. <clears throat> the first point in this lesson is that all are guilty of sin against God. We find this in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18. What then? Are we any better off? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Vipers' venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The period of the judges from the generation after Joshua to Samson and even Eli, causes the Bible reader um, to have some questions and grave concerns. Here was a people whom God had miraculously rescued from slavery in Egypt, who had experienced God's miraculous provision in the wilderness, and who received the promise and fulfillment of a homeland by the sheer grace and power of their Almighty God. What's more, they were entrusted with the very words of God, the Old Testament scriptures that declared the truth and the true beginnings of creation, the fall of humanity, God's interventions in the world, his messages and warnings, and his holy expectations upon the people he had chosen to be a light to all as his image bearers. Yet, these blessed, blessed people were not any better off than the Gentiles surrounding them. The first three chapters of Romans makes the case that everyone, 
both Jews and Greeks alike, are all under sin and deserving of God's judgment. To be under sin meant to be under its authority, to be its slave, and to have it dwelling within, prompting and directing one's actions. According to Paul, this is the condition of every single person, regardless of their background. To support his claim, Paul rattled off a list of Old Testament texts in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, that can be divided into two sections. First, Romans 3, 10, and 10 through 12, teaches the universal nature of sin as it, is, as it draws from Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20, Psalms chapter 14, verses 1 and 3, and then Psalms 53, 1 through 3. These passages, inspired by God, bear authoritative witness to the fact that everyone is sinful. There is no one righteous, not even one. Because of sin, no one understands. This reveals the impact of sin upon the human mind. The thoughts of human beings are tainted by sin. So too are the desires of humanity so that no one seeks God. Rather than seeking God, everyone is turned away and sought fulfillment and meaning through their own means. While we do describe some people as seekers, we should understand this context. God seeks us first, not the other way around. We respond to God's love for us. Finally, no one does good. Sin affects the actions of every person. People can do good things from our vantage point, but from God's, everything that is not from faith is sin. Therefore, sin is universal, poisoning the mind's desires and resulting in actions of sin sinful actions for every person. The second section of Paul's argument here, found in verses 13 through 18, teaches the extensive nature of sin and draws on Psalms chapter 5, verse 9, chapter 10, verse 7, and chapter 36, verse 1, following up with Psalm 140, when chapter 140, verse 3, and then Isaiah chapter 59, verse 7 through 8. Paul has already demonstrated sin's effects on the mind and heart. Now he shows how sin works itself out through the rest of the body. The mouth is affected by sin, making it an open grave, spewing out venom. The danger of the tongue is evident to everyone. Sinners use their words to wound and to harm other people. The feet are affected by sin, illustrated by the sinners running to shed blood. The emphasis here is on being quick to perpetrate or respond with violence. Sinners travel on paths that show no and know no peace. The eyes are affected by sin. Our perspective on life is skewed and therefore false. Rather than seeing God for who he is as holy, just, and good, sinners are blinded by, the, by their sin and have no fear of God. So they choose their own foolish path, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Taken together, the two sections of Paul's argument demonstrate the universal nature of sin, that everyone is a sinner, and the pervasive nature of sin, that sin has affected every part of a human being. 
We all suffer under the rule and destructive consequences of sin and stand guilty before God. Every person is a sinner and guilty before God. We deserve death as punishment. But we also find that we are already dead in our sin. The second point is that all are dead through sin against God. We find this in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through the one man, and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people, because all sinned. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. He is a type of the coming one. Having established that everyone is a sinner, Paul identified the origin of sin and death. Where did sin come from? The answer really is simple. Adam. Although Adam is not named explicitly until verse 14, he's clearly in view in verse 12. When God placed Adam in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it, he granted to Adam the abundance of the garden so that he could eat from the fruit of every tree there including the tree of life. Every tree except one, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God told Adam that if he ate the fruit from that one tree, then he would surely die. But Adam and Eve disobeyed God and willingly ate the fruit, believing it would make them wise like God. Through Adam's disobedience, sin entered the world. Certainly sin has affected the order of the earth, Indeed, all of creation, for that matter. But sin's impact upon humanity is primarily in view here. Sin entered the human race through Adam's act of rebellion. Yet sin was not the only thing to enter the world through Adam's disobedience. Just as God had said, death also entered the world through sin. Physical death entered the world when Adam and Eve ate the fruit. Although they did not die immediately, the process of physical death began the moment they disobeyed. Eventually, Adam and Eve would experience the physical death promised by God. Immediately, however, Adam and Eve did die spiritually. Spiritual death refers to being separated from God. Adam and Eve's separation from God was evident in their hiding from God in shame and they're being driven out of the garden and forbidden to return. In God's perfect wisdom, sin and death were not restricted to Adam and Eve. Instead, death spread to all people because all sinned. Adam and Eve opened the door for sin to enter creation, and all of their descendants have been affected, as we saw in Romans chapter 3. Every person sins, earning the just judgment of God death. But even more fundamentally, we receive the penalty of death because we've inherited a sin nature from Adam, along with its consequences. Through our relationship with Adam as descendants, we are by nature children under wrath. We are born spiritually dead and separated from God. Therefore, every person is guilty from two directions. The sinful nature inherited from Adam is passive sin, and then our personal participation in that via the, our own sin, 
excuse me, is active sin. Because every person is guilty of sin, every person will die. Not only is sin universal, so too is death. Now, verses 13 and 14 show the far-reaching power of sin and death. Paul pointed to the time period after Adam and before Moses and the giving of the law. During that time, the explicit commands of God were sparse, so most people didn't sin in the same way Adam did. Transgressing a specific command and without a benchmark of God's expectations having been laid out, God did not count their violations of his law against them. But that didn't mean the people were innocent. They, they and their actions were tainted by sins, at the least. They should have known better through their conscience. But even more significant, while sin was not counted against them, they still died. Death truly is part of the inheritance of all people that has been received from Adam, our common forefather. Paul concludes this section by identifying Adam as a type of the coming one a foreshadowing of Christ. Like Adam, Christ's actions affected all of humanity. Unlike Adam, <clears throat> whose effect was death, Christ's actions resulted in the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness being offered to, to sinners. Adam's sin brought condemnation. Jesus' obedience brought justification leading to life. Jesus, therefore, is the better Adam. Every person is a sinner, and every person deserves death. Our only hope for salvation from sin and death is in Jesus Christ, the better Adam. The third point is that all can be rescued from sin and death in Christ. We find this in Romans chapter 7, verses 24 through, 24 through chapter 8, verse 11. What a wretched man I am! who will rescue me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. In order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on things of the Spirit. Now the mindset of the flesh is death. But the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it's unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, in you, then he who was raised, Christ from the dead, will also bring you your mortal bodies to life through his Spirit who lives in you. This passage, given, 
given the sinfulness, demonstrates that given the sinfulness of humanity, Paul lamented the human condition. Yet sin is not merely universal, it's personal. Paul knew about sin from experience, as does every Christian on this earth. Paul expressed the familiar longing, familiar longing to be rescued from this body of death. He was not denigrating the body, but acknowledging the spiritual impact of sin in our lives. Everyone, including Paul, has a mind, heart, body, and will that have been twisted by sin. Similar to the Israelites crying out to the Lord during the time of the judges, Paul was crying out for deliverance from the tragic condition of sin and death. And, true to form, the Lord raised up a deliverer. Thanks be to God, the rescuer comes through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus is the only one who can deliver sinners both believers and non-believers, from the stranglehold of sin. Paul was well aware of the ongoing internal struggle between the mind and the flesh, between obeying God's law and gratifying the sinful nature. Thankfully, Jesus provides the believer with the power to live in victory. In Romans chapter 8, verses 1-4, through 4, Paul expanded on his exclamation, that Christ would rescue him from his body of death. In Christ, there is no condemnation. The condemnation that resulted from Adam's sin has been overturned. How? By faith in Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we've been set free from the law of sin and death. <clears throat> On account of our inherited sin nature, no one is able to keep the law, which is why Paul said the law was weakened by the flesh. The law has no power to save the sinner or make a person holy. By God's design, it can only condemn us. But this was the coming, but this was so that the coming of his son Jesus would be seen for the glorious provision that he actually is. In flesh like ours, though sinless, Jesus offered himself as the sacrifice for our sin. He took upon himself the condemnation that we rightly deserve for our sins so that believers, those who repent of their sinful flesh and choose instead to walk by the Spirit, would receive the reward and status of his perfect obedience to the law. In Christ, believers are declared righteous justification, and empowered to obey God's commands, sanctification. Therefore, Christians who have been redeemed by Christ's death and indwelt by His Spirit are free from condemnation and free to keep the law. Verses 5-11 through Then in Romans chapter 8, verse 5-11, through Paul set to work contrasting the flesh and the spirit so his readers would be able to distinguish between these two very different ways of living and seeing the world. In truth, this is the difference between non-believers and believers, respectively. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds fixed on the flesh, meaning they will continue to sin and receive the wages of sin, which is death. Those who live according to the Spirit, however, allow the Holy Spirit to direct their lives, which leads to life and peace. The mindset of the flesh hates God and cannot submit to his law. 
choosing transgression instead. Consequently, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They lack the desire and the power to do so, both of which come only through the work of the Holy Spirit, also known as the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. If one does not have the Spirit urging and empowering him or her toward obedience, then neither does that person belong to Christ or even have a relationship with God. Thankfully, Christians do possess God's Spirit through faith in Jesus. So even their bodies suffer death on account of sin. God, through the Spirit, will raise them up just as Jesus was resurrected because that is what Jesus purchased by his sacrifice, salvation, and eternal life for all those who believe in him, both now and forevermore. Typology is a term that, that is really a facet of, well, it's a type of biblical interpretation that recognizes an intended comparison of a person, place, event, or thing within the Old Testament with a corresponding person, place, event, or thing within the New Testament. Although the historical contexts differ, there's a real similarity between the two designed by God so that the former is said to point forward to the latter. So in other words, Adam is foreshadowing the last Adam, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to close today with a voice from church history. Adam is a type of Christ in that just as those who descended from him inherited death even though they had not eaten of the fruit of the tree, so also those who are descended from Christ inherit his righteousness even though they did not produce it themselves. That's from Chrysostom who lived from 347 to 407. Let's close in prayer today. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we just lift up our burdens and sin to you and ask for your forgiveness. And we thank you for your gift of your son, Jesus Christ, as the final Adam who came and redeemed us from the sinful nature that we were all born with. I ask, Lord, that you would come and be with those who are sick and hurting today and just comfort them and that your grace and mercy would surround them, and that you would raise them up. I ask that you would send the Holy Spirit to guide us and direct us this week, and go with us in all we do. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.